Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is passionate about writing, and specifically writing about his family and organized crime, and his family and organized crime. Alan Geik is author of Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair, published by Sonador Publishing. Available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And you can follow Alan Geik, that's spelled G-E-I-K, on Facebook. And Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. Well, your story has many threads, but it starts out with your then 12- to 13-year-old Uncle George and his lifetime co-conspirator, Ruby Kolid, and he, they're burglarizing a dry goods store in their Lower East Side neighborhood. Now the Las Vegas connection. 40 years later, Ruby is the president of the Desert Inn, and he's the executive, which I didn't know, who demands that Howard Hughes leave the premises. He also becomes the man on the inside of the Desert Inn and the Stardust, standing in for Chicago and Cleveland crime bosses who were barred from Nevada casinos. That alone could be a book, but yours is much more of a, <laughs> a wider view of all of this. But that part intrigued me because of the time connection, where here's how he started out, and here's how he ended up. So how did you decide to go down this road of writing about your family and organized crime? Well, it never occurred to me to do it. A couple of years ago, a few younger relatives, younger cousins, nieces, nephews, they knew of these people's existence, but they weren't born when those people were alive. And they heard half stories. And my sister, who's an attorney and knew all the women and the men in this story, she urged me to write something down. And as I wrote it, my sister had all the photos of these people at bar mitzvahs family events. And then also there they are in the FBI documents with the FBI photos. So I put them, juxtaposed them in the book, which was sort of my own sense of, uh, of uh, a bizarre humor. <laughs> yes. Which were the better photos, the bar mitzvah or the FBI? Actually, the, uh, the bar mitzvah ones, because the FBI ones look like you would expect. There's uncle, uncle so-and-so holding a, uh, a card in front of him. And there he is at the party with his beautiful wife, uh, all dressed up in 50s uh, uh, bar mitzvah wedding outfits. <laughs> and an inmate number across his chest. Exactly. Yeah, even there. So how did you conduct your research? Because you, as you mentioned, your sister, who's an attorney, had a lot of photos and you had some remembrances and some storytelling passed through to you. But I'm sure that your research became even more complex after a period of time. It did indeed. And there were two tracks to it. One was my, our family history. As we, My brother was also a detective in New York, a quote-unquote elite detective who also got indicted for his involvement with organized crime. But between my brother, my sister, and I, we really checked these people's stories out. I mean, not checked them out. There was no internet. There was no social media at the time. But I had a real good connection with their stories and their views of organized crime, which were very interesting. But also, I had to put it in a context uh, for a book that wasn't just a string of anecdotes. So I started to do research. And uh, the research, uh, I have a bit of research uh, uh, history and as I did it, I was just amazed at how much they were the, not they, just them, but all the people, uh, criminals of that generation, really built organized crime as what would later be a uh, franchised business. 
there was a whole interconnection of all these. We always hear about family this and family that and who had which piece. They all had pieces of everything. I never understood what that meant when I was younger. But as I started later on, my brother and my father, who was very much involved in the garment center trucking because of his connections, it was clear that every family had a piece of different things. And that's what made it so strong. When we hear about a commission and all that kind of stuff of resolving issues, that was their appellate court. They didn't go to court with uh, who had which franchise in Miami and Cleveland. They went to the people they needed to go to in these uh, issues. But there were those two tracks of uh, research, one my personal one and one as looking through the mountain of research that's been developed over the years because of the interest in this subject. You mentioned your background in research. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you know where to look? I know that you were a film and digital editor, and you also were host of some music programs, two stations actually in Los Angeles for more than 25 years, and you've also produced some albums. How did the research element come into that play with that? Well, I have a master's degree from uh, the London School of Economics, and I did research there on things such as distribution of income, development of third world countries. I was really used, this was way pre, uh, nobody heard of internet or anything like that. This was going to that old institution, the public library, or the, <laughs> the library at the university. So I had a good, a good sense of where to get it, how to get it. And I did research more recently for uh, magazines in 2008 about the uh, the crash, the uh, crash of 2008, 2009, and the bank bailouts. And I wrote stuff about that. So I wasn't, uh, I had a, a familiarity with how to get to the, what I th- thought to be the end result of research. I want to flesh this out a bit, but first, what were your feelings about knowing that parts of your family were involved in organized crime? Do you have mixed emotions about that? Did it conflict with your ethical standards? No. And uh, when I knew these people, um, it was so normal. It, the, the, if I had to describe one word of growing up in that environment, and by the way, there were uncles and family members who were not part of that, too. And these were just uh, part of the bigger family picture. They were the more interesting people to my brother, my sister, and I. I love being around them. Not because they were criminals, but they, they had a certain sense of, of life that the other relatives uh, uh, who had a uh, suburban home and uh, uh, that weren't part of uh, organized crime. And as far as the ethical, I knew what they had done, and I understood uh, who these people were. But to me, they were just uh, doting relatives and, and extended family. And I could only keep it that way because that was my father's, my parents' generation. They loved those people because they grew up with them and they all helped each other out. Legitimate and illegitimate members of the family or just of the community often work together on different projects. There may be be gangster money in the dry cleaner down the street, but they operated on their own. And who knew the backstory to all of that. So, um, uh, uh, in a word, uh, the ethics was not part of my thinking at the time. When I look back at it now, it's such—it's who they were. 
It was their life, and I was writing about it as dispassionately as I could. Which has to be a little bit of a challenge, especially if you have a sense of right and wrong. That's where I was uh, going with that question. So, um, I, And I do want to point out that even when they were operating 100 years ago, 90 years ago, 80 years ago, the Jewish newspapers were appalled. Well, they had a very conflicting attitude towards a piece. On the one hand, they were just uh, recently arrived from Eastern Europe, which was a nightmare for Jews, and that's why a million or however many came from 1880 to World War I. And they loved it that these men were going to be in the street in a minute to fight anti-Semites. They, they loved it. They were street brawlers, and they looked for those people. But on the other hand, they were also the same people shaking down the dry cleaner on the corner. And people were indebted to them, loan sharks. People could never, families could never get out of their indebtedness to Jewish and Italian and Irish, whoever, mobsters. So there was a lot of, of conflict in the Jewish media at the time. We tend to think of organized crime just with Italians. I'm speaking generally here. Obviously, there were Jewish gangsters, Jewish mobsters. But there seems to have been more Jewish gangsters and Jewish mobsters than those of us growing up realized. In other words, we, there might have been one or two here or one or two there, but most people thought of ethnic gangsters as being primarily Italian. And yet, based on recent books and recent research, there were quite a few Jewish gangsters. Can you give us a sense of how they got into that life and that time period that they would get into that life and why they were, in a lot of cases, allies in crime, meaning the Jews and the Italians? The, the, in my view, I grew up knowing the connection, uh, because I saw it regularly. The Italians and Jews go back to uh, 1,500 years before Christ, when the Phoenicians were traveling the Mediterranean. They were the first seafarers, and they were Semitic people. They were right next to the uh, kingdom of Israel. And uh, the, Italian, the Italians took their uh, alphabet. The connection went on, and after the Inquisition, uh, the, Italian, uh, the Jews who had to leave Spain, a lot of them went to Italy, to the city-states, Genoa, Venice, uh, places like that. But when they came to the United States, they both came at the same time, at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the 19th century. And they were both treated as lesser people because one group was Roman Catholic, the other group was Jewish, and they were both subjected. They came to cities that were often controlled by Irish who had been there 50 years before. The Irish political system, the uh, no Jews and Italians need apply for the city jobs. So they gravitated towards each other. And also on another level, and one that I remember was, and my mother told me that she was very sensitive to this, the Italians had no sense of Jews being Christ killers, interestingly enough. The other uh, ethnic groups in the city did, and I heard it as a child, too. So that brought them closer together, I believe. And also, during World War II, I found this out as I was doing some research. The Jews in Italy did much better than the Jews in the rest of Europe, almost 80%, according to one study I read, 80% of the Jews in Italy survived the war. They were protected by the Italians. And when, we, when I, my mother pointed that out years ago, we always hear this term, stand-up guy. You know, oh, he's a stand-up guy, but 
How about being an Italian family, women, men, children, who stood up to the Gestapo and said, I'm not giving up the Jews. I've known these people for four generations. And they didn't, largely. I mean, I can't say, obviously, it wasn't 100%. But that brought them together. And they worked really well together. But the Italians were targeted. J. Edgar Hoover only believed that Italians were the gangsters. And that was that. That was a joke in the Jewish community. If I'm, my father had a trucking business that was protected by the Jewish and Italian organized crime members. I wrote about that fairly extensively. But when the city grand jury would investigate mob influence of the garment center, the only person they ever subpoenaed was my father's Italian partner, who never knew a single gangster. He lived in New Jersey in a small mansion. He loved to play golf. He hated New York. He hated every all he knew about were trucks. And, that's, <laughs> and that was the joke. Like, Johnny Runk, you're going down to, to, to the grand jury. My father never got, my father, the one who knew all those people, they never even touched them. Fascinating. You also write about your late father-in-law, Lou Lennart, who was the first fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force. What's fascinating about him is he had been a Marine Corps fighter pilot during World War II in the South Pacific. And you write about the fact that he was witness to the Italian government and the Italian organized crime elements, as you mentioned before, protecting Jews, but more importantly, protecting the secret bases set up on the coast by the Israeli paramilitary group. So this goes beyond just simply protecting individual Jews. Right. Yes. They, during World War II, the, uh, Jewish under, the, the mobs, the Italian and the Jewish mob, teamed up with Navy intelligence because they were concerned about the ships that were coming up the coast from uh, bringing oil up the coast being torpedoed by German submarines. How did the submarines have such uh, could, could travel that far? Was it German people? And they, they, info, they went to the Italian mob who controlled the docks, and they wound up getting on the ships. They couldn't have done it without the control, without the approval of Mayolansky, Lucky Luciano, Sox Lanza, all of those guys. So by the time the war had ended, the, uh, the, the Jewish uh, paramilitary in New York and also in, in other places, they teamed up with Navy intelligence. And the U.S. government and the British government never wanted Israel to be a state at that point. So they, they, uh, they had a neutrality act, and you couldn't really ship uh, weaponry to uh, the combatants in Palestine. But the people on the dock said, no, we're sending all this stuff there. And they created a huge network. And my late father-in-law, as you mentioned, he was a uh, Marine Corps fighter pilot in World War II. He, uh, he was on Okinawa and he attacked Japan. When the war was over, he was recruited by the Haganah, the Israeli paramilitary, and they stationed him first on these bases in Italy. And the bases were protected by Italian mobsters who hated fascism to begin with. And they also hated the British who wanted to close down these bases. And the Italians in the street protected those bases. And Lou never knew anything about organized crime. He came from Hungary. Next thing he knew, he was a Marine Corps uh, pilot. He never knew the name Lucky Luciano until he was on those bases. And people let him know that this guy who just came from the United States, who was 
they deported from the United States in 1946 was giving the okay, not the okay, but you guys protect those bases. And Lou was, was one of the beneficiaries of that. After that, they went to Czechoslovakia, bought some Nazi planes, refurbished them, and those were the first planes of the Israeli Air Force, Messerschmitts. And I have a photo of Lou standing in front of one in, uh, uh, in Czechoslovakia or perhaps Palestine at the time. Fascinating. I didn't realize that was the beginning of the Israeli Air Force, the repurposing of Messerschmitts. And they were aware that Messerschmitt's it's going to save the state of Israel, and it did, the four of those planes. And one of the other planes was flown by Asa Weitzman, who was the first president, became the, and he was Lou's friend for their whole life. And I spoke to him several times when he called Los Angeles to find Lou, pre-cell phone days. It is amazing to me, when you read about all the history of World War II and its aftermath, that so much of that happened in a pre-internet, pre-cell phone period of time and how people were able to organize things and communicate things in that period of time. It is. When you just, if we, we both can remember pre-internet, when people had file cabinets for days and days, I was a film editor and we had a whole room of dailies and outtakes and stuff now it could fit on my cell phone, probably. <laughs> did, you, did you edit using a moviola? Oh, I used it all the time. I used the moviola. I used the, and the big technology was a, a Steenbeck or a chem. They were flatbeds on which you put 35 millimeter film. But my friend uh, had a uh, moviola down the street from me as sort of an antique. And I <laughs> when you look at it, it looked like one of the first era cars. You know, maybe a Model T Ford or something. It was like, dude, and The Godfather was edited on that machine. Gone with the Wind was, and uh, you name it. And uh, Well, that goes uh, to my point that even before sophisticated technology and digitization, you had these moviolas and great art was created on the screen. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the greatest movies pre-1995 uh, were all done on... Uh, moviolas and 35 millimeter film where you cut the film with a little razor blade attached to a block and you have tape and you have glue and uh, you have uh, film cleaning to uh, with a glove. <laughs> now, ca now called the Stone Ages. <laughs> so. Stone, right, for sure. <laughs> I want to go back to the title of your book because it's called again, Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair. Tell us a little bit about your Uncle Charlie and who Dutch Schultz was and the connection and that, why you picked that as a title for your book. Well, when I started to write it, that the title jumped in my mind as sort of almost like it sounded, it sounded so odd. Oh, my Uncle Charlie killed Dutch Schultz because Dutch Schultz, as we know, was one of the big mobsters of the uh, Prohibition era and uh, right after that. And he was a... Uh, he, he never fit in with the new idea of corporate gangster of or corporate organized crime. There were several of them that didn't. Waxy Gordon, another Jewish mobster. These guys just couldn't fit in. They were Italian ones too, so they just took them out. And they did that with Dutch Schultz. And Uncle Charlie, and I, I do want to say, because someone asked me, oh, is he your real uncle? And I put it in my uh, book as well, that 
I could never call him anything but Uncle Charlie because these some of these men, they wanted camaraderie. It's hard to believe, but he did 23 years in jail. He'd come into Manhattan. He had a small shop in Manhattan. He loved my brother and me. And he, we were his nephews. And my father was one of the civilians who brought money to his family when he was in prison. And my uncle George, who became the big time operator with Ruby Collard in, uh, in Las Vegas, they knew each other since they were kids. So in a sense, uh, he, he was my uncle. Uh, I couldn't call him anything else. And he was assigned the task of killing Dutch Schultz. And to him, it was just another job. Amazing. How did you find out about the Las Vegas connection with Ruby? Well, I knew of the Las Vegas connection because I remember I was very young when they moved from Cleveland. I didn't know all the backstory until I did research, but they moved from Cleveland, from uh, these, they had for 20 plus years, the Cleveland Syndicate had all of these casinos, upscale casinos in, in Ohio and around Cleveland. And they really had that experience. And they were the ones who really ran the, uh, one of the big casinos in, uh, the Havana Nacional Casino, but they moved to uh, Las Vegas because it was too hot. There were too many things that happened. Uncle George getting arrested. There was a big, the Mounds Club, one of the old casinos in the Cleveland area was robbed in 1947 by 14 or so armed bandits who disappeared soon after that. And the story of that is in there as well. But they moved to Las Vegas because one thing happened overnight. It was legal. Gambling was legal. These illegal, these guys who ran illegal casinos, but of course, legal meant that you also had to pay taxes. So let's just skim the money and make and have less money. So uh, I mean, after all, they had to steal something, as my father would say. <laughs> this, they just had, they had, and, I, and, and throughout my book, there's several incidents of like, they just went out of their way to scam something somewhere because that's what they did. And that's why you had that big cash flow, because uh, they were always skimming and coming up with ways to get that money. And it was the biggest cash flow in American history. It was the industry, organized crime with all of its facets, prostitution, drinking, uh, gambling, uh, numbers. It was the, the cash flow. Nobody would ever know how much, could ever count how much uh, that cash flow was. And it interested me, maybe because I had some bit of my schooling, that here were these people who would, in the 1930s, buy a piece of someone else's operation, and they would trade pieces of it, as I mentioned earlier. And that just made it so strong because, hey, he's my partner down there. We may not like each other. or well, we may have a problem. Let's go take it up to the, to the appellate court. <laughs> of whoever the, whoever was sitting at in the uh, social club down the street. It's funny your background because I mentioned about the two Cuban albums that you produced. So there is a similarity between the old days in Havana, Cuba with casinos and Las Vegas with casinos. Absolutely, and one of the big similarities is they were both legal. This was the first time that all these illegal. These people, Meyer Lansky, the whole Uncle George, uh, Mo Dalitz, all of those people were operating legitimate casinos. And they had Senator Mac... Uh, um, uh, Pat McCarran? 
Thank you. I was trying. What's that airport's name? Senator McCarran uh, was one of you know. They, he was he was in their pocket, and then he passed away at a crucial time, the mid fifties, I believe. But uh, they were dealing uh, on a whole different level. As a matter of fact, they became uh, pillars of Las Vegas society. Modalits, and they built hospitals and uh, gave away tons of money, as they did in other places when it was illegal. They knew the name of the game was make the population love you. What was the biggest surprise you discovered in your research? Well, the biggest surprise to me was how organized organized crime was. I was aware that it was existed. They really developed over when they became organized at the end of the 20s and the early 30s. They continually refined uh, their organization to where they, the fights and the murders, they were always happening. But when you think about it, there was so much money, there was so much illegal activity, there were so many uh, facets of organized crime that it ran pretty smoothly. Here and there, there would be a murder, someone would take over this one. But it was sort of, I guess, the same as maybe a company's uh, go bankrupt, but the system gets stronger along the way. And that was one thing that interests me. But the really big thing that stunned me was I never thought there would be so many people who would be interested in this. I wrote it for my family. But soon after that, I went on social media and I found dozens of groups of tens of thousands of people who were members of different groups. They may not all be active members, but there were the New York Mafia, the Mob Era, Mob Summit, uh, the La Kosha Nostra, uh, a Jewish mob uh, site. And I was just shocked that those people, were, when I wrote, put stuff up at the beginning of my research onto one of those sites, people responded immediately like, oh, you knew this person. And well, here's a picture of him at my bar mitzvah. And they would write to me in private, but they loved it. It was like, and to me, it was just a shock. I never would have imagined when I knew those people that 50, 60 years later, people would be asking me questions, people I didn't know. They're asking me questions about someone they've read about most of their life. And of course, a lot of that's due to the Godfather movies, Casino, Sopranos. I mean, that really toked up the uh, interest in, in organized crime. So those two things were one of my biggest surprises. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Alan Geik. He's author of Uncle Charlie Killed Dutch Schultz, The Jewish Mob, A Family Affair, published by Sonador Publishing. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And you can follow Alan Geik, spelled G-E-I-K, on Facebook. Alan, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.